This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Hey everybody, Aaron Noonan here, V8 Sleuth Podcast. It is our second episode of the year. It is F265. Will Dale is alongside me and uh, we've kept you chained to the table since last week. There were so many questions. We've got more to do. Shall we barrel in? Let's barrel in. Barrel away. Uh, who's got the new ball this week? Are you bowling? Am I bowling? Which end oh, are we bowling I'll from? I'll bowl it in. Right um, Matt from Twitter, at Ravenous Aardvark is his handle. I noticed that Aardvark only has one A in his handle. That's though. a question for Matt. Yeah. I'd be, maybe no, double, a, a, double, maybe a, double a, a was already taken. Well, by me. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> when did the team's championship become the basis for the pit lane order and when did the thinking change to the last box being preferred? I remember during the HRT dominance of the late 90s, they always had the first pit box at the events with pit stops like Bathurst. Well, the first thing this brings into my mind, team's championship as a championship point score it's only been in place since 2005, but the team's mm. championship was first awarded in 99. Basically, the champion driver's team won the title. So Craig Lowndes Holden Racing Team, Mark Scaife Holden Racing Team, times, what, three? Yes. Um, Stone Brothers Racing because Marcus won a couple in a row. And then in 05, the, the point score came in. So that was always kind of the, the basis. But it's one of those things, too, that the, the last pit box became the – Oh, that's kind of, well, what you want to be able to duck out of pit lane and be able to watch the whole pit lane and see, oh, they've short-filled that car, let's short-fill ours and get him back out in front. Mm. No one was thinking of that stuff back in the day because everyone had prior to place, garage one was yes. kind of the the place that you wanted to be. But and that was the time, nice end of the Bathurst pit lane back in the day <laughs> from what I've been told and read. Yeah, but in terms of the, the supercars championship whereby it determines the – the pit lane order, it's actually been that way for a long time now when you stop and think. We're, we're going into 2023. This has been kind of planned out that way for a long time. Almost 25 years, basically. Yeah. I, yeah. I went back and dug through a few of the operations manuals that we have lying around and back as far as 2002, 2001, it specifies in the program that, yeah, championship order, um, with the exception of Bathurst, where the champion previous year's champion would indeed have the first garage pit box and then after that it was um all dispersed at the determination of the technical officer at supercars and for bathurst a lot of teams before before the current pit lane had their own like personally built garages out the back Mm. so it wouldn't have made sense to have your garage down one end and then be pitting right down the other end so that also dictate a lot of where teams set up and if you go back to Bathurst when it was an ARDC run event before the supercars, a Vesco mm. era, 
whichever way you call it, V8 supercars, supercars, same thing. Alan Moffat was always kind of the guy in that first pit bay mm. for, for many, many years through the, the 70s and the 80s. Fred Gibson's team kind of then took it over in the Nissan years because they were obviously they'd won the race a few times. They'd been the um, reigning champions of the Touring Car Championship. They were running cars one and two for, for many years. I think in the Holden era they stayed down there as well. But then once HRT won the championship, I think that's kind of well, they won the championship nearly every year then for yes. what best part of the next five or six. Yeah. So they hung out down there. So uh, good question, Matt. That was that was one that's got the memory bank uh, winding away. Richard Tater's got one too. Uh, he says, "Do you know where the WPS Falcons ended up? Are they currently in Super Three or Two? Hope you and the team had a good break." Well, we did. Actually, no, he says great break. We did have a great break. We did. But we're back into it now. Um, WPS Falcons do still exist. They all do. Um, none of them are racing in Super 2, certainly not Super 2 and not Super 3 or the V8 Touring Car Series either. Um, so there were four different cars. One of them was an AE Falcon, which they didn't use in the main game, but used in Konica-level races, mm-hmm. um, and three BA Falcons. Uh, they were all purchased from... Um, funnily enough, talking about Gibson Motorsport, all of these cars came from Double O Motorsport at the when that was shut down, and Craig Gore purchased basically all their gear. And two of them were complete cars that Double O had raced. Yes, and then there was a third one that was not completed by them. It was by WPS, and they actually debuted it quite late in I think 07. Max Wilson ran it with uh, who did he drive it? Sandown with they they the swapped. Bikes? Uh, Caruso. Caruso, yeah. Yeah, Caruso because Barks had Denier and then they went back to Wilson and Barks for Bathurst and they drove that newer car and uh, Barks uh, – you got me saying Barks. Uh, Denier and Caruso drove the, the Barks car. So, um, And that AU, though, that spent time as a BA. It actually got mm. converted later on down the line in its ride car era. Yeah, the team referred to it as their BU Falcon because <laughs> it was part AU and part BA. Well, well that's the car that Costa Zoo drove. Ah, I remember of there was a, a, yeah. a WPS promo. Uh, Lee Hanacek, who was the PR guy at the time, put this all together. Um, that Costa Zoo, boxing champion, drove the car at Queensland Raceway. I'm mm. not, and I think, did Bugs go boxing training with him? Yes, I, think I that believe was part he did. Of that was the other of, half of the equation. Yeah, that was yeah. the other half of the equation. But, but yeah, we'll have to dig out the photos of Costa having a run exist. in that car. We, they are yeah, around. yeah, yeah they're I've around. seen them. We've got them, I think. So, Richard, yeah, they're around. They're just not really around in Australia. That that AU that became a BU uh, was returned to being an AU. It was in WA for actually quite some time, um, last time I'd sort of thought about it and seen it. A few people were trying to tell me it was the green-eyed monster because it had green headlamps in it. But uh, connected, sister of, cousin mm. car, but not the uh, green-eyed monster that is uh, the famous Craig Lowndes car. That's for sure. But uh, pretty much those other three cars have all made their way to New Zealand, of all places, being used as as ride cars. But it's been some time since I've actually had any connection with any of those cars or their owners or who, what, when, where, why, or how. I think they popped up for sale there a few years back, but Mm. nothing came of it. So they're around and uh, they are an interesting part of supercars history, that's for sure. Lachlan Mansell. Yes, that Lachlan Mansell. What, the Lachlan Mansell? The Lachlan Mansell. There's only one. man, Lachlan Mansell. That's him, your friend and mine. Wow. What's your opinion on the safety car wave around rules for the Bathurst 12-hour? Do you think it's a good thing because it keeps more cars in the contest for longer or a bad thing because it makes it too easy for teams that have had setbacks to get back on the lead lap? Interesting question. Mm. This is a are you an entertainment person or are you a purist person? It, it, it boils down to this really, doesn't it? So, Look, I like seeing race cars challenge that 
can challenge for the win, like as many as possible challenging for the win. So I have no problem with in the 12 hour, especially in this current era where we don't have a huge oversubscribed field. I want to see is I basically don't want one car left on the lead lap in the last couple of hours. But do you want people getting free kicks for stuffing up all day? If you're stuffing up all day, but if you okay for argument's sake, you could sake, stay in the race. You could stay in the race, but for argument's sake, you have a one of the leading cars get um how can I put this um, inadvertently trip over or be tripped over by a backmarker or a gentleman driver. I know that's racing, that's but racing. also it would be good to see that car get back into the race. So for them, I, yeah, and, <laughs> and for and for us watching, I'm it's, on board. It's, I'm it's, I'm it's, perfectly fine with it for the twelve hour. But not for the 1,000? No. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. I'm totally against it for the 1,000. I think it sucks. Mm. I hate it. It's probably the most – the rule of all rules in supercars that I hate the most. Mm. It's just not required. 12-hour AM drivers, particularly last year's race where it was a pro-AM again, it wasn't mm. a, a – pro, there weren't any pro-pro driver lineups. I could get it for that and I could still get it for the 12-hour and I can sort of – doesn't wrangle me too much for the 12-hour, but – I think if you got to the point where that race, I mean, what, 26 cars for this weekend? It's pretty thin, although it's majoritively of them are GT3 cars. It's not like it's uh, all Invitationals and Porsche, mm. old Porsche Carrera Cup cars. It's a pretty handy lineup for, for what you would want to have for a GT 12-hour race. But and, we, and, of course, we are still only, what, year or two? Well, we're not fully out of okay, the so post-COVID era. Put it, if we got back to 40, 45 cars or high 30s, does this rule go? I might actually have to counter what I just said because I'm, I'd be happy to keep it around. Really? Well, you then would have more slower cars that are potentially at risk of taking out faster cars. But what if they're all GT cars? No, I've seen they're that happen before. They're not that much before. slower. Uh, it's all dependent on the driver on board, isn't it? No, I think you've got enough with provide, as, as long as we ever stay with safety cars and we don't actually go to virtual safety cars or mm. Code 60s or whatever's used in GT racing in other parts of the world, yeah. as long as we've got a safety car in play and we don't go those other ways, then there's enough possibility to get yourself back in the game with safety cars. If you didn't have safety cars and you had freeze the field every time there's effectively a caution, then the wave around I would sort of be a bit more up for. But while yeah. there's safety cars, you've already got a methodology. You've still got to have it land your way. You've still got to drive fast. You've still got to have a bit of luck. But I think that's a much more, to me, that's a more palatable way to get a result you can than race your just way to back get in. free kicks all the time. Well, it's like it's like getting a free kick at one end of the ground and then instead of just taking the kick, you get a 200-metre penalty, go the other way and kick a goal straight away. It's like, yeah. Well, if that's the rule, though. It sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. GW at GavW05 on Twitter. Love all that you do, Noons. Thank you for everything. My question, will we ever see the Bathurst 24-hour race again? Why slash why not? Cheers, Gav. Gav, I reckon I've got some bad news for you coming. Shortest answer in the history of the podcast here, Gav. No. Yeah. Why? Uh 
Cash. Yeah. Lots of cash. They were very expensive races for teams to run. Like it's running a 12-hour is an expensive endeavour with a high-end GT car. It's not just double to run that for 24 hours. And it's not just the cost for the driver's team's cars. It's everything else. Hmm. You've got to have official to out there on the track for over 30 hours because it's not just from when the race starts. It's from earlier in the day. There's support category races. There's other stuff. It's a massive manpower, woman power, people power process. And here we are. The last time we had a 24-hour Bathurst was, what, 2003. Mm. So we're 20 years on this year, anniversary. Maybe we talk about it a bit later in the year on on a podcast with some of the people who were involved in it all. But it's hard enough now to get officials and volunteers to run the race meetings that are on, let alone then a requirement for a 24-hour race. So there's all these other elements at play, but the big one is it just costs so much. It's an amazing thing that happened. Ross Palmer should forever be noted in the history books of Australian motorsport for the money that he spent and the commitment that he made to pro car, the categories, and to those 24-hour races. But the reality was, and still is, it's just not financially viable, particularly now in today's current world. I mean, if you took the 12-hour tomorrow and turn it into a 24-hour race, is it better? Does it get more cars? No way. No. If if teams from Europe are struggling to put together the um, the business case to come down here at the moment, doubling, doubling the race distance isn't going to... No. Uh, it may add a bit of a halo to the event being 24 hours instead of 12, but it doesn't equal more entries, unfortunately. No, and entries pay money and money keeps it all spinning and more and more. Uh, Sam Walsham, what impact do you think about the removal of in-car anti-roll bar adjustments we'll have on the Gen 3 supercars? Do you think it'll harm or improve the show? Now, for those who aren't aware, that's how they're going to roll out to start the season. They will be implemented later on down the track, but for now it's one thing that they've decided, supercars, to just go, well, one less thing to worry about. Don't worry about it for the moment. Let's just get everything up up and running and on the track. See, I never understood the argument about it being more entertaining to watch drivers working the roll bar from the cockpit, from the in-car camera. I'm with I don't you. get it. I'm with you. I'm not entertained by it. I don't find all that exciting. I'd find it far who, more entertaining. Who does? Well, I'd find it fa- probably probably other race car drivers, but I'd find it far more entertaining to watch the driver sawing away at the wheel because their car's handling poorly now that the fuel load's gone down or because it's not quite right in the first place. I'm totally with you on this. I've read that comment somewhere along the line about the theatre and the People love to see it on income. Who said this? Where was this written down? Are there fans who listen to this podcast? Is this a fan council thing? (laughs) Is that a thing still? I don't think so. I'm not sure. Anyway, is there anyone listening to this podcast who says, oh, wow, I love to see them move the anti roll bars because it's exciting and interesting? I actually think that it's it helps the better cars and the better drivers Mm. to tweak up their car more. So if your thing's a dog or an absolute jet or anything in between, how about you let it be one of those things for longer. I'm just thinking with my mm-hmm. is what's better for racing hat on here. Okay, you've got to survive to the pit stop. Because I can still the make the you adjustments. You can still do it, but stops. it's got to be done during a pit stop. Or do you take – I think it brings a bit more strategy in. Mm. Oh, we've not nailed this. This is not going well. All right, pit early. Let's come in and make an adjustment. While we're at it, we'll throw some tyres and fill it up and do some other things to it. I think it actually becomes another element in the changeability that actually can play into the strategy of things. And rather than everyone just – I just don't get the whole people want to see it on TV. Like I want to see the driver belting away at the gear stick, working the wheel, working the pedals, 
you know. That's it. We talk about yeah. driver skill. There was all that talk about driver skill when it came to getting rid of, potentially getting rid of the um, sequential shift and going to the old flappy paddles behind the steering wheel. Yet you see more of the drive. It's a, I'd argue it's a bigger test of driver skill to try and wrangle an ill-handling car than reaching over twice a lap and making a roll bar adjustment to make it that little bit better. I'm with you. Yeah, totally, totally. And the in-car adjustability for each corner or for certain sections of the track and all that sort of stuff, if you take that away, it can't be done. It yeah. can't be done. So set it's the same up, for everyone. Set your car up for how you think it's going to be best at different times of the race and if you want to tweak it on the run, compromise yourself, pit a bit earlier, run a bit later. It that's just it. adds you, another variable you want in a things category to be, that's not varied. Totally. You want things to be – from the outside, as a driver, you definitely don't want a car to be compromised from corner to corner. But from a fan, you want to see the driver trying to figure it out. Let's put it this way. There are 25 drivers in supercars. Is hmm. that right? Yep. There's lots more than 25 fans, viewers, people out there. <laughs> yes. You're outnumbered drivers. What yes. you want, what you think's best for you, doesn't work. Sorry, <laughs> you're out. I'd say let's leave the anti-roll bar in car adjusters out of them. Yep, I'm on board with that. Okay, cool. We've just solved problems of the world. Love it, love it. Yeah, expect expect 25 angry emails. It's all right. We know where they're coming from. Yes. <laughs> Next question is from David Roberts. Now, what was the first motor race to be broadcast in colour on Australian TV? It is a great question, and I've actually got a theory on this, mm. and you might be able to prove me wrong or right on this. I may or may not already have the answer in front of me. Okay, so, so that's a may. Yeah. I vividly remember reading somewhere along the line that this was – in congratulations, Tasmania. All the people that say Tasmania are way behind, you are way in front on this piece of Australian motorsport history because it was a race at Simmons Plains in Tasmania. So it's 1975 Colour TV came into Australia and it was a round of the Australian Touring Car Championship but the colour swap over happened in the lead up or across that weekend so they actually had a preliminary race. Was it the Friday or the Saturday? Was It, it was those rounds where they had Friday and Sunday racing, wasn't it? Somewhere along those lines, am I, am I warm? Keep going. And they had like a one-off race because it was the first day of colour television in Australia. So the Touring Car Championship round was on Sunday, April 2, 1975. Mm-hmm. C-Day, colour television day in Australia when the switch happened. Is that happened. what it's called? Yep. Okay. C-Day. Righto. Yep. Uh, it was Saturday, March the 1st. So there was a 10-lap preliminary race held that morning. And it was shown live, not 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 pre-recorded, shown live through 130-odd ABC television stations nationwide. That's cool. Yeah. Sorry, it was on Saturday afternoon, not Saturday morning. But, yes. Did Colin Bond win? Colin Bond did win it. HDT Tirana. That's the one. That's a great piece of trivia. That is really great. It sprung – and I hadn't done the research on this. It just sprung in my mind because it's something I did look up and read many moons ago and I can verify there was, there was no corroboration or anything on this. He Noons genu- genuinely pulled that one out whilst I was looking at it hidden from his screen. So, well so played. So the, the other thing too is it, it springs into my mind. So 75 Bathurst is the first broadcast in colour TV. Emphasis on broadcast. Broadcast. Of the 1000. You'll notice that there's in the – and we released these on Chevron DVD some years mm-hmm. back, the Seven Sport Magic Moments. The 74 Bathurst, they had colour cameras there, but they just didn't transmit mm. in colour. But if you see some of the vision, you can see some colouring in it. It looks a little strange. It's not fully 
black and white as you'd traditionally mm. expect it to be, and that's the reason why. And when they switch, you can you can also see when they switch from one of the colour cameras to one of the black and white ones. I think all mm. the pit lane cameras were still black and white units. Um, and I think I read somewhere that they did have, while they didn't transmit it outside the circuit, they did have demonstration TVs t- at the track that you could look and see what colour television would look like. Isn't it funny? We just take it totally for granted now that things are colour. Yeah. It's funny because I remember like back in, was it 2018, when Foxtel broadcast the race in 4K for the first time and they had a big 4K TV in the paddock you could go and have a look at. It's, yeah, very different but, yeah, interesting how time's changed. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, 1975. Mm. Yep, it's pre-me. It's pre-you. Yep. Uh, What's next? Jaden Ricketts, what happened to the Motor Focus model podcast? I liked having a detailed list of what was coming out and what certain models were realistically worth. Jaden's among a group here of people who would love to see this podcast back. You and I are included in that list, by the way. Yeah, I asked many questions to that podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, values for models were all determined by mm. it. We would love to bring it back. Uh, we have had a chat recently to the guys at Motor Focus. I'm going to put something to them soon from a commercial um, aspect that might be able to make it work for us all and find some time to be able to do it. It wouldn't be every week. It wouldn't be every fortnight. Probably every month at best, I reckon, maybe a little bit more gap between them. Uh, but there's no doubt there is a very keen and eager audience out there who really love when we have that podcast rolling and I think it's the logical thing to bring back to fill that space that doesn't currently have anything in that space. Uh, Saren Thatch is a regular. Uh, what's the story? You might remember this, Will. You've got a black T-shirt on, so you, you, you're matching in for this. Mine's got branding on it, though. It, it does. Uh, I'm not giving the publicity it's a speed to the t-shirt, brand. Actually. It's, 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 a, it's a defunct it's brand. It's defunct, yeah. It was speed. a great TV network it or was. TV channel back yeah, in the day. I did some stuff on speed back in the day. You were there. On the television network, yes. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, for clarification. Steady on. What's the story behind Lucas Dunbar Motorsport running two plain black cars at the Townsville 400? Well, the thing is, so this is back in 2016 and they didn't intend on running plain black cars that weekend. The idea was that they were going to get sponsorship from Do you remember do you remember the Candyman? The Candyman can cousin. No, no, not that yeah, one. Not that one. Right. Not that one. Travis Benyon, yeah, a self-styled playboy entrepreneur multi whatever. Squillionaire. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, one of his one of his various business so businesses was to do with tobacco retailing um, and he had done a deal, if I remember correctly, to sponsor the LDM cars that weekend. I think Free Choice. That's the one. Yeah. I just was looking that up online actually. So, And they were re- they are, were, still are, I think. Uh, not sure. um, it's not. It's not a segment that I'm really yeah, into. A retail tobacconist franchise. That, according to what I found online here, uh, over 300 stores. Uh, and then vending operations around the country. However, the sponsorship was blocked by supercars on the basis of it breaching Australian government advertising legislation when it came to selling tobacco, which kind of not all that surprising given that tobacco sponsorship of any kind hadn't been in the sport since 1996. Tobacco Act came into being. It wasn't so much that cigarettes, well, cigarettes couldn't be advertised, but it was Mm. tobacco. Yes. So obviously there was a... uh, can't have this. Yes. So um, plain so black. Plain black it was. And there was were, that Nick Perkett and Andre Heimgartner? So that's 20. Yes. What year was that? 16. Uh, 16, 15, yes. 16? Yeah, 2016. So the yep. same year that Perkett won the Adelaide, Adelaide 500 with his SP Tools backing. That's right. 
but yeah, they were on a very much a rotating sponsorship, primary mm. sponsorship basis. And um, for Townsville, there was no sponsorship. They actually the cars actually looked quite good in their plain black livery. They stood out. That's they for sure. really did. Yeah. <laughs> that's probably not the way that they were planning on. No, nah, there was there was at one point they were going to try and arrange for like a Travis Benyon racing livery that didn't actually have the any of the free choice branding on it, but that didn't. Didn't come to pass either. Didn't work. No. Didn't work. Matt Bottrell on Facebook, uh, he's got a question about Bathurst, Will. When they talk about Mount Panorama being 6.213 kilometres or 62.13 metres, 6,213 mm-hmm. for those uh, who say it that way, from the start line to the finish line or is it finish line to finish line? And he also wants to know why does the shootout timing start at the finish line and not the start line, i.e., What's this measurement from and why are the start and finish lines in different places? So technically that 6,213 metres is from control line to control line, which that is, is the, the finish full track. Line. Yeah, that is the full track. Whether you measure it start line to start line, finish line to finish line, that's the distance. Now, the start line is in a different spot because of having a lot, trying to get as much of the grid starting in a straight line and not starting around the corner, basically. So that's why, that's why the start finish line is halfway down the front straight mm. as opposed to starting where the control line is which is the finish line mm. and because otherwise you'd only fit like first two, rows two three of rows of cars and then yeah they're turning around the corner which back in the days of 55 cars for the 1000 was starting didn't matter where you started there was always going to be someone around starting the corner. halfway that halfway up the hump in yeah. the second hump <laughs> in Conrod. it's 148 meters i'm told from start to finish line at bathurst that's the difference so Although if you start on pole position for the Bathurst 1000 and you know by the time you finish it you actually don't finish the full <laughs> yeah, kilometer kilometer count if if I could put it that way so uh, that's why that is how it is and and the, the control line which is the finish line is the timing reference line so that's mm. the one that runs also across into the pit lane as well so when cars are coming down through the little chicane the little wiggle there into the pit lane proper that's where they they register that as well yes Last question is from Michael Heron. With the Sandown 500 back, what driver combo has won the most and what driver has won the most? And also, how many have won the Sandown Bathurst 1000 double? Well, driver combo is an interesting one because (laughs) the guy that won all the Sandowns had co-driver called No One. Yes. Brock won solo eight of his nine. The only time he ever won one with a co-driver was the last one, 1984 with Larry Perkins. The first year it was a Sandown 500 mm. because they lengthened the track and the distance of the race had been extended from 400. So the most – so he, he's the one with the most, if you deemed solo as a combo. Mm. He's definitely the one with the most overall with nine. Yeah. And that's not – I mean, he won seven in a row at one stage there, mm. 75 to 81, ridiculous. Yes. But then which combination of two drivers has done it the most? Well, I was going to say, technically, the next combination is Alan Moffat and no one with four, four <laughs> wins out of his six total wins. Uh, but of actual combinations, it's actually Jamie Wincup and Paul Dumbrell who have taken three wins. It's the- uh, yeah, they were always very competitive there in the, the Vodafone days and into the Red Bull days. So. And there are, a few, there are a few races there that they also probably could have won, but as they did at Bathurst, it didn't quite go their way. 2016 with... PD undoing the belts too soon on the way into the pits. Ah, uh, that's right. Yep. Um, and getting pinged for that. And also the tyre failures that they had in 2017 when they were quite a ways out in, in front. In the retro liveried cars. In the retro liveried cars. Mm. And they, I think they led for a long time in 2015 as well, but and then had a punctured, a strange 
they punctured a tyre on the way out of the pits because yeah, something had fallen ran, off ran the ring. Ran over a wheel nut or something Yeah, on something like that. But that, they were kind of cooked because they'd been out in front for so long and everyone behind them had saved fuel and jumped them on that stop anyway. Isn't it funny? This really reflects how Bathurst dominates the brain and mm. the landscape. All of the Jamie Wing Cup and inherently Paul Umbrell because he was there part of it for most of those, all of the coulda, woulda, shouldas, didn'ts, the running out of fuel, the passing the pace car, the crossing the line first but not winning, they were all wink up and umbrell moments and they're all remembered so vividly because they were Bathurst. Mm. But Sandown, because we haven't had the 500 for a long time and, look, nothing has the memory appeal of Bathurst, they're a little bit forgotten of what could have been. I mean, you look at it and go, they've won three Sandown 500, which is a very impressive run of results. But it could have been four or five, or maybe or even, even six. six. You think back to twenty twelve when I can't we forget remember, about it. I can't remember what happened in the race for the grid in twenty twelve. But they start ended up starting the five hundred a long way down the field. Was it something oh, with PD or with Jamie in one of those races? Uh, but they started a long way back. I've got a funny feeling. Did one of them run? Was it PD? Nosed it off, running onto the back straight, and had to get reverse and get. Oh, it's so long it's, ago, I yeah. don't quite remember. But it was something. I, so I, remember, another one, yeah. I remember that it was the one that Winterbottom made a dive on Wink Up with a couple laps to go down at Danny Nong Road and muscled his way through to grab second and split what would have been a one two for, for triple eight because Lowndes and Luff were out in front to, to win the race. But Prompting a spicy tweet from Roland Dane. I think Casey Stone had got in on the act then too, as well, from my, my memory. So that, they won three. Who else has won? Because there's other people who've won two Sandowns as a combo for sure. Yeah, there's a few combos. So Glenn Seaton and George Fury. I was there, 86. 86 and, and 90. 90. I yeah. was there as well. Yeah. Um, Johnson and Bauer won oh, two in a row. 95, yep. yep. It took a long time to get there. Yes, but once yeah. they got there, they got two in a row. They did. Uh, Craig Lowndes, Jamie Wincombe have won two. Oh, yeah. Separated yep. by quite a few years. Yep. Uh, and Lowndes and Greg Murphy. They won two years in a row as well. Back to back, 96, 97. So we had four years where two combinations won the races. Yeah. Johnson Bow, 94-5, Lowndes and Murph, 96, 97. If you wanted to include Queensland 500s, that's actually three combinations in six years because Larry Perkins, Russell Ingle won the last of those Sandown five, that era of Sandown mm. 500s in 98 and won the first Queensland 500 in 99. They did. And hopefully now that we've, we've got the Sandown 500 back, who knows? How for as long, long as we one, have One, two, down. three, who knows? Yeah. The, the history of the 500, I mean, it's so critical, I think, that we get a race that's back to the pre-Bathurst race. And if it's not Sandown in the future, that it's somewhere else to carry on that run, I think it's a, a cool way to lead into the biggest race of the year. To be honest, I'm also okay with it not being a retro liveried round yeah, this I'm year. Yeah, I'm cool with that. Like and the, the tradition of the event itself and the venue is enough for, yeah, for totally. mine. Like, I, I love the retro Retro round and Sandown is a logical place to have it, but I'm okay with it if it's if the not being a thing if the 500 is coming back. And it's not a thing officially from a supercar's perspective, but I can't remember if we mentioned this last week, but it's been mentioned around the office here by some of the boys mm -hmm. that well, if Sandown's not going to be a retro round officially as a supercar's thing, we can always have a retro round. We could always what, have what a Sandown themed V8 sleuth. We're not going to like put us. on a race meeting, <laughs> but for Sandown Week, content on the website, if we did another one of our talk nights, everyone comes in retro gear, 
we could really get into the flavour of it. That's true. This is a valid point. Yeah. 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 Nothing, nothing like a heads up to um, be, get ready September. For, it's a long yeah, way yeah. off. Get ready. Get ready. We haven't finished Michael's last part of his question, though, because he, he also asked um, how many have won the Sandown Bathurst double. And if you take Brock out, it's not many. No, that's true. So the Sandown Bathurst double has been done nine times. The first time by Alan Moffat in 1970, Mm -hmm. then Brock on his own in 75, 78, 79, 80, and then Brock won it with Larry Perkins in 84. Mm -hmm. Then 94, Johnson and Bow was the next one. Then Lowndes and Murphy in 96, and Lowndes and Wincup are the most recent in 2007. It's been a while that it's been. I know we haven't had a 500 for the last couple of years, and it's been a few, you know, Phillip Island, Sandown. There's been some years where we haven't had one as well. So it's not many in the grand scheme no. of things. It's pretty rare to be able to. I mean, it was pretty common. I mean, in the 70s alone, it happened four times twice in the 80s, twice in the 90s, one in the noughties. Hmm. So it was diminishing as it got more competitive. And to be able to win those two big races was a pretty tricky act. Absolutely. You think of. All the talk about Sandown being the key form guide for Bathurst, you look at that list and, you know, in a fairly, fairly solid way, no, it's not. Well, it doesn't. what it doesn't do is it doesn't guarantee that you're going to get the result at the next one. Mm. I'd be interested to see if you looked at the Sandown winners of those other years, what happened Where to them at Bathurst. Up. Yeah. And it would be an interesting one to see how that, that graph appeared if it took some very big spikes and some very big drops down because yes. <laughs> I don't think the numbers would be lining up very much at all. So uh, thanks, Michael. Great question. Any time we can go back down memory lane with the Sandown 500 or uh, the Enduros at Sandown is a good one. Uh, we have got so many more questions. We'll get to them with some more Q&As down the track on the V8 Sleuth podcast this year. We've got plenty of stuff coming up uh, this week, this weekend, the Bathurst 12-hour GT race. I'll be there. Will's going to be there. Steph's going to be there. It's going to be uh, a big weekend at Mount Panorama. It's kind of the kickoff, really, isn't it? It for the, the Australian domestic motorsport season. There'll be some jet lag people who've rocked up from Daytona who are wondering what day it is, where are they, <laughs> is it morning, is it night time? I was going to say, it's not just us three, it's also Valentino Rossi who's going to be there. Big, huh? The Doctor. The Doctor is Cannot wait. Cannot for wait for, for the 80,000 times someone's going to say, did you know that they used to race bikes here <laughs> to, to Valentino? <laughs> I'm sure he'll act graciously every single time. Uh, he'll just uh, be very kind and... You know, I'm probably on the 1,148th time. I'd probably be ready to spit the dummy. But I just want to get in first. You could be the first one. Yeah. Uh, don't be the 1,148th no. person. Garth Tander, by the way, is in the commentary lineup for the TV coverage for the 12 hour. He's our special guest on Friday night at the National Motor Racing Museum for our first Bathurst uh, 12 hour open night for this year. Second one that we've ever done at the 12 hour. It's at the National Motor Racing Museum. Uh, half seven, Friday night, couple of hours a chance to sit down with Garth and talk about his amazing career. We're going to talk 24-hour too. We're going to talk about the Monaro, the 24-hour races, his experience in the 12 hours in Audis, and, of course, we can't ignore the great race that he's won five times, including being uh, reigning carryover champion in a split situation <laughs> this year with Shane Van Gisberg, and they'll be up against one another in October for the Repco Bathurst 1000. Tickets are available still for the 12-hour open night. You can jump on the link on the show notes from this episode to be able to uh, take you to Eventbrite, which is where the tickets are purchasable from. So come along. They're good nights. They're a pile of fun. They're pretty low-key. You can have a wander around the museum as well and check out some of the cool stuff that's there. There's bikes there because they used to race motorbikes there, Will. Did you know Did they? Yeah, I know. Did they just? Unbelievable. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? Don't forget to, Tuesdays, Castrol, Motorsport News Podcast. 
uh, AVL and Stefan back with plenty more news notes and quotes and insight into what's going on in motorsport. There's so much going on domestically and worldwide for them to discuss. Uh, every Tuesday you can listen to that episode with the guys uh, and of course the V8 with podcast Wednesdays. Repco Supercars Weekly is out every week. Thursdays or Fridays depending on what's happening. It gives you those little updates in what's happening in the Repco Supercars Championship as well. Right, we're done. Plenty more Q&As to do. We'll get back to those a bit later on in the year, in the months ahead. Thank you to Will. Thank you to the listeners. I'm Aaron Nuna. We'll chat to you next time on the V8 Salute Podcast. Bye for now. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out.